Hello and welcome to the Aurelius Podcast. Our guest this time is Darren Hood, a seasoned UX practitioner, educator, speaker, and author in the field of design and research. Darren has been doing UX for more than 20 years across various industries and company sizes, so he's seen what good and bad UX looks like. His passion for the work we do is palpable, and it shows how greatly he values integrity and clarity in our field. We had a conversation focused on the topic of UX maturity. Naturally, we talked about what UX maturity really means, but also the various lenses to assess UX maturity. Darren shared several personal stories as well as his framework for understanding the UX maturity for yourself, your team, and the company you work for. Darren shared several insights about how UX maturity impacts the quality of the work we do, but also how it can affect the hiring process, leadership approach, and more. If you're interested in what UX maturity is, how to figure out where you and your team may stand in that area, and curious about how to improve your UX maturity, you're going to love this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Darren Hood, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Zach. I appreciate it. Definitely, definitely. So we've chatted before, various channels, mm-hmm. online, otherwise. <laughs> Excited to have you on. I really appreciate you jumping on and taking the time. Yeah, I, I appreciate you folks having me. I always love to share. Uh, as you know, love the product. At, at, you know, and, and other people rejoicing about you folks. Uh, happy that you're doing the podcast again. And, and I feel the same way here. I love when good voices, good resources, people who have a heart for the discipline, are sharing things that 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 folks can can trust in because it's a it's a trying time in, in UX today. So yeah, very happy for that. Yeah, that's uh that's true. I think there's a lot of signs, things looking up. Um obviously, obviously appreciate the compliments. It means the world. Uh, anytime folks like you, other UX leaders recently, I think you're probably referencing uh sort of that unsolicited praise, really, really awesome to hear. And um yeah makes me very very happy to hear it's not an accident so <laughs> awesome well <clears throat> so here's the thing i feel like everybody ought to know who you are you share a lot of good stuff right but in case somebody doesn't uh they're starting to listen to this particular episode just like we do every single one right yeah i gotta say why don't you give a little bit of background the kind of work you do sort of where you're coming from so people get an, an idea of your perspective when we jump into the conversation sure absolutely so uh my name is uh, darren hood okay there's the hard part <laughs> everybody already knows none <laughs> uh, I am, I like to, depending upon where I am, I will, so I'll give you my, my generic introduction. I am what I like to jokingly refer to as an OG UXer, uh, because I've been doing UX since before it was called UX. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my, worked on my first UX related project in 1995. I had no idea what I was doing. No, we didn't call it UX. We didn't, I didn't use any of the terminology that we use today, but in retrospect, I, I, I remember things that I did. They are things that we do today. I didn't know the phrase cognitive load. I didn't know the phrase information architecture. I didn't know anything about usability. I didn't know anything about heuristics, but I was using those things to work on a website project for a nonprofit Mm -hmm. and and that turned into a freelance business. And then I started gradually doing UX more and more part-time in my day job. And then eventually made the plunge. I said, I fell in love with it. And I just I just dove in hook, line, and sinker. I was actually going to go and get a master's in education and said, forget that. I love information architecture, which was what most of us were called at the time. 
And so I just, I just opted in and I've been, been in love with the discipline ever since to the extent that, and this is where a lot of people might be familiar with me. I fight for the integrity of the discipline. I spend a great deal yeah. of my time and my dime helping people to grow in the discipline, helping people to see the right direction that they need to go, helping people to understand what UX truly is. As a lot of people can't define it. I'm there to help people to understand what UX is, understand what direction you need to take to get better, understand what UX is and what it is not. A lot of people will accuse people who, um, mm-hmm. uh, like me of being gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. When in fact, every other discipline in the world has gatekeepers, and that's why they flourish, because they do. So I know that gatekeeping is about quality advocacy and not about stopping anybody from getting in. Matter of fact, it's the contrary. We're showing you how to get in the discipline the right way. So if you want to do this work 15 years from now, if you embrace the types of things that me and other people like me present, you will have a long-standing viable and accurate uh, way to function within the discipline, the way that you apply the different methodologies, the tools, the things that we do, uh, you'll be able to, you you will be a longstanding and a solid practitioner if you do things the right way, instead of panicking or going with the flow or, or grasping for straws by way of fads, uh, which a lot of people do today. So that, that, that's me in a nutshell. I, I teach at five universities I, I speak at many others on a regular basis. I'm one of the authors in 97 Things Every UX Practitioner Should Know. I have a podcast. I am everywhere. I mentor people all over the world, uh, actually about to start uh, mentoring on Meander. Uh, so uh, we, that's about to take off. So I'm sort of kind of everywhere. And I'm glad people get to hear my voice because a lot of people, they they haven't heard my podcast. They they don't hear. They, they read my posts and they assume the voice and tone. So you get to hear it today. If you hear anything that sounds rah, 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 that's passion. That's all it is. I'm not mean at all. Uh, not, I'm a big teddy bear, as a lot of people will say. <laughs> but, I, but I am passionate. And, and uh, passionate is usually demonized in our culture. Uh, and no, 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 we need to have passion. And we need more people with passion today, uh, which ironically is a, is a strong suit. If you're new to the discipline, your passion will take you a long way. Instead yeah. of different and easily manipulated and things of that nature. So be passionate. Yeah. So interesting. I mean, based on your introduction, doesn't sound like you have a very strong point of view on anything. So <laughs> funny, funny thing about that. I, I have very strong points of view, but I also have rules. Mm-hmm. You don't know. Don't say it. I, I'm also, I failed to mention, I am a doctoral candidate. And one of the things people don't understand about PhDs is that no matter what somebody's getting a PhD in, all PhDs revolve around trustworthiness and reliability of data. Mm. So if 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 you assume something and throw it before a review board, they are going to throw it back in your face with no concern whatsoever how you feel about it. And so we learn, and I've been like that for years anyway, from a standpoint of, okay, this is what I see, but is it viable? Let's go prove it. We start to think about makes you think about research. Sure, of course. Here's something like that. Is it is is this really true? Well, let's go find out. I don't say anything unless I know it to be accurate and will not say it until I know that it's accurate. So people say up strong opinions, but there's a difference between an opinion and an expert opinion. And and I have a a closet full of a, a, a bank vault full of 
of expert opinions, but they are all things that can be proven out. It sounds like you try to be very careful about what you say with passion. And yes. that only happens if you have conviction in that backed up by exactly data. Yeah. If it can't be proven, then I mean, because really there, there's another element behind the passion when it comes to sharing things with people and it's respect. I respect you. So I refuse to misinform you. Hmm. I value your goals and your passions. So I'm going to make sure that I only give you a triptych, if you will. I'm only going to give you a map that's going to help you in that journey. Respect is at the core of everything that I do. And I say things, if I tell somebody I have a blog post, and that UX Uncensored blog post on yeah. media, and there's a post called, there's a nail in your tire. And, and it's really about how to take constructive criticism and 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 to really ramp up with that thickness of skin as a UX professional. And a lot of people don't want to tell you there's a nail in your tire. They, I'm gonna get a little bit raw, and, and that's part of what I do. They won't. You ever you ever been listening to somebody speak and there's something in their nose, and sure. you see it or something they, in their teeth or whatever on their yeah, face. Old, yeah. It's in the teeth bit. Some people won't tell them that there's something in their nose. They won't tell them that there's lint on their shoulder or their wonderful suit or dress, and they think they're sharp. There's people that won't tell you because if there's spinach in your teeth. I'm the person that's going to tell you yeah. because I don't want you to suffer any anything because of that embarrassment, that potential embarrassment, or things of that nature. So I'm the person that's going to tell you. Coddling is at an all-time high. I talk about this in my podcast. Coddling... Uh, one of the biases too. I was looking at looking at different biases, even in getting ready for this. And, and there is a bias. It's called courtesy bias. It's giving an opinion that's socially acceptable because they don't want to ruffle feathers. I don't have that. That's not. I I I don't have any politically correctness or political correctness. It's not a part of being a good UXer. You can't be a good UXer if you're going to be politically correct because we have to learn how to push back. We have to learn how to tell somebody diplomatically, professionally, to let them know that their baby is ugly. Not in those terms, of course, sure. but we have to let them know for the good of the project, for the good of the users, for the good of the business, for the good of how we represent the discipline. So, so yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be that person who's going to let you know. You may not like it in the moment, but you'll like it two weeks from now, When and especially when you see somebody else who wasn't told and what they experienced because somebody decided to spare their feelings instead of telling them what they really needed to hear to succeed. So yeah, that's mm -hmm. me in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, cultural influences, you know, ha that has a different impact in those things. It actually reminds me of this story. You may have heard this, but they were analyzing a bunch of airplane crashes. There was this one uh, Korean airplane crash and it was totally preventable. They were going to run out of fuel. And uh, because of sort of like the social hierarchy and order, in that culture, they were being almost exceedingly polite in the way that they were requesting sort of next up needs for runway and stuff like that. And the airplane ended up crashing 100% preventable. And then there was a bunch of training and stuff, uh, cultural training that needed to happen, so, you know, for people to sort of like understand that. Because if it had it been, I want to say that it was uh, it was a flight with a Korean crew that was in maybe like a Western culture, and they were not picking up the subtleties of the culture change in the way it was requested. And so it was basically teaching people to be a little bit more assertive. I mean, that's, yeah. it's just something that reminds me of that. But you know, what I got to say is definitely got to respect somebody who stands by what they say, chooses to be very precise in what they say, 
you don't always have to agree with that person, but uh, a lot of respect for somebody who puts puts themselves through that kind of that kind of rigor in order to make that choice. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. I I always like to liken the that what people call it tough love. Mm. Uh, if you were driving it with someone in a truck and they were about to go over the line, you don't, you can't, the moment, the, the context of the moment calls for a certain type of an approach. You can't eat, you know, Hey, you're about to hit another oncoming vehicle. You can't be all soft (laughs) in that moment. Yeah. By the time you finish saying it, you know, somebody's dead. So I don't know that's sort of morbid, but it, but it does help to illustrate the truth of it. So there's ways to be tactful. We don't have to, we're not advocating being mean to people, but there's a time that we have to say something. And there's a lot of instances in UX where this comes up Mm -hmm. and, and uh, time, especially if you have time constraints, you have certain, certain really, uh, strong-willed stakeholders, <laughs> yeah. things of that nature. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges, and because we can all do the easy part, we can all pat somebody on the back. That's yep. that. That's easy. So the other stuff, the the better we are at that, the more we'll be able to thrive. Especially when you consider the fact that a huge chunk, as much as seventy percent of the work done by a UX professional, has nothing to do with the actual work. Totally. <laughs> totally. You know, I've said that a lot over the years is you know, people people are very, very focused on our craft. And there's so much more that goes around that. If you're great at the craft, but nobody cares. Yes. You have a different problem on your hands that being a better designer, you know, sort of like <laughs> pixels on the page or whatever that a researcher <laughs> isn't going to solve. You know what I mean? And back to the one thing that you said, the thing that came to mind for me and something I try to live by, too, is. Uh, being truthful doesn't mean you have to be intentionally abrasive, right? They're exactly. not, you know, better not be right. Right. Cause that's different. You know, in one case yeah. you, you're just trying to be a jerk. Yep. And, and the other, your intention is, you know, truth and helpfulness or whatever. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's firm. Sometimes it's not depends on delivery context matters just like most things. Yeah. Right. But, uh, you know, all of this kind of comes up because one of the things you seem pretty passionate talking about is this idea of UX maturity. Yeah. I think that some folks have talked about this, written about this, whatever. I mean, I guess the first place to really start is when we say UX maturity, what is that? What do we, what do we mean? That's a, it's It's a great question because there are circles where UX maturity comes up often. And it's like it is with a lot of other concepts. In UX, you mention it, and then there's ten different definitions, or there's a whole wave of people that really don't know. And then, and then of those people, some of them are willing to tell you, "Hey, can you break that down for me?" And then other ones, they they insist on putting on a front like they know, and then now that becomes destructive over time. UX maturity is it basically the way that I define it, and I talk about this a lot. I'll be speaking at Convey UX about this very topic, by the way, in February in Seattle. UX maturity, it really revolves around, and again, you may not hear this definition anywhere of the people, the listeners. It has to do with how grounded and how informed people are about the discipline. Nice, simple, straightforward. 
Mm-hmm. Do you know how? Do you know what UX is? Can you define it? Well, the way you define it will determine uh, what your UX maturity. That it, it's a contributing factor. Sure. The way you operate, the way you support, and 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 I'll back up because I'll get into a whole bunch of definite, uh, not definitions, but traits. Because mm-hmm. I think that knowing the traits has more value than a, a definition, which could be all over the place. But one of the things that I talk about with UX maturity, because we historically have looked at UX maturity as it pertains to an organization. And you'll see, yeah, and you'll see all these models and every model that has ever been published about UX maturity always, it's always examining the mature, the UX maturity of the organization. But one of the things that, that I have done, I spoke at University of Michigan earlier this year about the same thing. I basically tried to get everyone, I presented it as somewhat from a theoretical perspective, if you will. It was, I wanted everybody to, to consider this because you haven't heard a lot about it, but when you hear it, you'll go, you know what? That's true. So I presented it as a hypothesis and, and I said, Hey, so you've got all of us for years, me too. Organization, you look at the Jacob Nielsen models and you look at the, there's an Envision model and I created a model that's out there. There's models everywhere. What would you say if I told you that we've only tapped into 20% of what a UX maturity model really should be? Mm -hmm. We, there's personal UX maturity. I did a masterclass on this for Interaction Design Foundation recently and show people how you evaluate your personal UX maturity. So now we've already gone well past the the organizational UX maturity. Mm -hmm. But once you've done that and you say, okay, our our organization, we're here. Okay, well, what about the people? What about the people on the team? What about the stakeholders? I, for years, for about the last 10 years or so, close to the last 10 years, I've been in the business of ascribing UX maturity levels to my stakeholders mm-hmm. and my clients to help me understand how to best work with them. Nobody ever sees it but me. Sure. But I know, okay, I rank these people here at this level, this particular level on a scale of one to five. I, I rank them at a two, so to speak, just off the top of my head here. Another group, I'll rank them. They are so sold out with sold out to. UX, they're so committed to doing things from a UCD way, Mm -hmm. uh, user-centered design, for those of you that don't know what that acronym means, that I know that when I'm working with them, I can work in a completely different way. And I don't have to spend time when I'm presenting any reports, any research data, and when I'm I'm trying to, to dialogue with them to help find out what the requirements are for my design initiatives. I When I'm working with a very, very mature group, this is something that's going to be very streamlined. It's going to be very fast. And I don't have to spend any time educating them. Mm-hmm. But if their level mm-hmm. is at a one or two or even a three on that one to five example that I just provided, I every meeting, every deliverable, everything you do all has to help be, it has to have this component in it that's helping to drive UX maturity because, oh my goodness, and the people at the one level, Th- those are the people who we don't need you here. Why are we doing this? Mm. These are the people that are drowning in biases. They're fighting against UX. They won't cooperate. They're trying to commandeer the designs. Those people are at a one. 
I will drop one one quick note too. Sure. Is that and, and it is revolving around the fact that Jacob Nielsen's model changed a roughly, I think, less than two years ago. And and for those of you who were interested in doing a little in, engaging in a little adventure, I would challenge you to just go to images.google.com and and type in Jacob Nielsen UX maturity model. You'll see the old one, and you'll see the new one. And it's interesting that they removed the ones that are, they, they've gone the way of courtesy bias in the new model because they used to talk about things like skunk works. They used to talk about things like people being hostile toward UX. Mm-hmm. And they removed them as if they don't exist anymore. This is still happening today. So we yeah. need to be aware of these things because as the UX professional, if these those things exist, and skunk works is more like, like, if I remember correctly, has to do with developer-led UX. Sure. That, that's called skunk works. So if you have a bunch of developers trying to commandeer the user experience, and they do in some organizations, it does happen. You have to have a strategy to manage it because we are responsible for the UX maturity. The stakeholders are not responsible. The developers are not responsible. Nobody else is responsible but the UX people. But at any rate, to make the rest of this quick, you got 20% for organization, 20% for stakeholders. We'll keep it simple today. Say 25, 25. There's a, there's a UX maturity that should exist in academia. Okay. Academic resources don't spend any time paying attention to it, nor have they even considered. Okay. Have they considered that at all? And then the other one, what I actually mentioned, it was the personal. So you've got four. There's really five, but for the sake of today's discussion, we'll just look at those four. The other three, beside organizational, don't get any attention whatsoever. So mm-hmm. these things are just out there, and they have a life of their own. And you have a UX maturity level, whether you're paying attention to it or not. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> a couple things that you said in there stuck with me. And I, I was actually already ready to ask you, when you talk about UX maturity, mm-hmm. if there is us as an organization and then also personal. And it sounds like you've already thought oh, very deeply about that and and so the short answer is yes right so i can imagine that there are sort of sub definitions and a lot more detail behind each one so that's one thing the other thing that you mentioned there a couple times maybe not meant to directly or intentionally (laughs) but uh is people there's is riddled with biases either situations and or people Mm -hmm. and i'm wondering how much of that actually helps you determine UX maturity level, even in each of those facets. Yeah. The higher the the higher the bias level, the less, the lower the UX maturity level will be. Inverse bias. I'm sorry. Inverse proportion with that. Yeah. Yeah. Because biases detrimentally impact maturity. Okay. Okay. If there's a bandwagon effect, uh, one one such bias, if there's a bandwagon effect, there are people are embracing things just because other people are doing it. Uh, then you have to strategize to manage that. If, if you, the UX professional, if you do not do things to manage that bias, and yet, and yes, we have to identify it first. Mm. We have to see that it's operating. We have to understand who and where it's coming from and have something in place to manage it. If you do not, it will impact your work. Mm-hmm. But the the giving it a UX maturity score or rating it just helps us to be aware. Okay, we're at about a three. We've got some work to do. 
We've got more work to do than if they were at a five. They were at a five. We're just skating right along. We got no issues. And the funny thing about that is when you're at a company, and one of the reasons I used to give scores to stakeholders, because one group of stakeholders might be a five. And then three other groups of stakeholders are ones and twos. Mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be that way at every company. You're hard-pressed to find high levels of UX maturity across the board. With everybody just involved. Yeah. I mean, it's probably just not something inherently possible given yep. the breadth of, you know, backgrounds and stuff that you'll experience. Yep. This thing that comes to mind here, right? <clears throat> Cause I can imagine everybody sitting here listening to this is probably saying, of course we want UX maturity levels to be high. That equals good result, whatever, however you would personally define that good result. Mm-hmm. I can also imagine people sitting here thinking, why should I care? I should be able to do my job, right? Like, I mean, think about this, right? Uh, I'll just, I'll throw this up as a, pr- a provocative statement or question. Okay. And I've heard people say this, right? Developers don't have to assess the maturity of their organization to do great work. They don't have to sell why development or technology acumen matters, <laughs> right? Right. You see where I'm going with this? Yes. Yes, and and that statement would be absolutely correct. Uh, but here's the catch, uh, and and this here's an example I use a lot. Let's say we all go to a meeting to discuss a project, and there's 15 people in the room at the meeting. Say it's a kickoff project, kickoff. Woohoo, project! All right, we're about to learn about this project. What are we gonna do? All right, and 15 people in the meeting. Eight to 10 disciplines are represented. Mm-hmm. Of those eight, let, let's just give it a flat number of eight. Eight disciplines are represented in the meeting. Seven of those disciplines are already understood. And truth be told, let's say there is a maturity level associated with those, and they're all high. Everybody mm-hmm. understands project management. Everybody understands what the developers and the engineers do. Mm-hmm. Everybody understands what the QA people do. Everybody understands what the product owners and the project managers do. The only person, the only discipline, and you're already laughing, you already know, the only one that other people want to democratize the work, the only other one where people where people don't understand, the only other one where other, you don't see people coming in and trying to take charge of the what the engineers and the developers are doing. You right. don't see anybody coming in trying to take over from the QA people. It's the UX people. We, we've been in the mainstream now for approximately 20 years. It's a, a little bit more than 20, but I'll just round it to the 20. Sure. And we're the only one that comes in the room that have to realize that people are still forming opinions and gaining understanding about us. We're the only one in the room. We're the only one in the room where other people want to take our work and do it. Hmm. We're the only one. We're the only one in the room. Other people want to design. Other people. I was in a meeting once. We were working on a project at one nameless company, just as an example. And 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 I've been in corporate America now since. I tell my age here a little bit. I've been in corporate America since 1982. I have never seen what people do to UX folks. Yeah, meetings with regard to f- failing to let us do what we do. We nobody else ever has to convince anybody about the value of what they do. We have to face fact that the facts that we do have to do this. Yeah, this might be going on for another ten to twenty years, 
And, and the fact that there was no misinformation in UX prior to 2011 simply means that we have to do it more because it was already rough. We were already trying to build the, and manage the UX maturity. And now because of the great, great just, just onslaught, for lack of a better word at the moment, of, of UX misinformation, it has made our job even tougher because people are buying it. Mm. They're buying, they're drinking the Kool-Aid quite a bit. And so now we have to offset. I mean, three UX people sitting in a room, one of them is sound and the other two are, are chock full of misinformation. And the funny thing about the misinformation addicts is that they know who really has the good information. So there's a lot of volatility okay, in the discipline as well. So we're trying to represent the discipline, get our work done, and then trying to manage, and it's really sad, but it's true, all this infighting that goes on between UXers. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's tough. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we have it, it just it's just the reality of it. We have to we have to keep managing these things. Going back to where you started answering that, it, it sounds like you're suggesting UX maturity matters. Yes. Because of the examples that you set forth where there isn't this friction. UX maturity matters in order to remove friction and do the best work. Yeah, sorry for going on that tangent. Like I did it too, but UX, UX maturity, we, we're the only one. No, people don't understand us, so we have to explain. Right. We have to not only say what we're doing a lot of times, but we have to be ready to explain why. Why? Because in any instances where UX maturity is low, they don't know. We need to respect that. We need to understand, hey, they don't understand. Hey, you don't understand. You don't understand. I'm here to help you. That's part of my job. So let me help you understand the value that we're bringing. Our value proposition is not understood. So where UX maturity is higher, value proposition of UX operations is more understood. Mm. When it's lower, it's not. So that means that you have to go to work. So me, I need to know that that maturity level isn't low so I can know I have to bake into my strategy of my work. How are you going to get the work done? What tools out of the UX toolbox do I need to get this done? All of those things are tied in UX maturity. If you don't know, then need to, you need to know you still have a UX maturity level even when everybody is ignoring it. And yeah. all the realities tied to that knowledge or lack of knowledge you're still going to come face to face with them, whether you know it or not, whether you choose to examine it or not. You can say, Darren, I don't care what you're talking about. I'm not paying attention. U.S. maturity is still going to come and bite you in the tuchus. Yeah. Because it's it's real. It's real. We need to understand. And, and we, we need to face the fact that other disciplines don't have to do that. Yeah, totally. Well, so then it sounds like taking away, sort of rephrasing how I'm interpreting what you're saying. U.S. maturity matters. And understanding UX maturity matters and all these and all these facets because it helps you pick your approach to the work and the tools and techniques you use to do the best work because it's all going to be situational. Something else that you said, I just want to make a quick comment because you've said this a couple times. It does make me wonder mm-hmm. why I've never seen anybody come into a development meeting saying, hey, <laughs> I threw together this quick this quick code prototype to show to show you exactly dev team hey you know the project planning meeting i just want to let you know i took a crack at this project plan the timeline 
<laughs> you know, yeah, never has happened ever. Never, never happened and never will. So, I mean, what what's causing that? Is it the approachability <laughs> to the work? Everybody, I mean, everybody, it. they understand it. They understand what the developers are doing. They trust their expertise. There is no question. Here's a developer. Here's an engineer. What what does he do? Ask ten people. What do they do? Oh, they do all the programming. They help it. Everybody will have the understanding is is there, and nobody they know they can't do it. Mm. So building on top of the fact that they understand and respect the engineers, nobody else wants to leave their work to come and try to do this work. But for some reason, the the story I was about to tell, and I sort of went a different way. I came into a meeting, and a developer came into that meeting. You're going to love this. We were already halfway down the road on the project. They came into the meeting with designs that he did in Microsoft Paint. Mm -hmm. Paint. That's a joke. That's an absolute joke. That's an absolute joke. Paint. Are you kidding me? We were already. <laughs> we were already doing this. The design, I was already handling it. We were meeting daily. We were having daily scrum. And you decided, you laid at home, decided that you were going to do something with the design. It brought no value. And, and, and this is the type of stuff that a lot of UXers go through. And it and it, it was a reflection of, the way I took it, it's a reflection of the UX maturity. So now here's something else. On top of the work I'm, I got to do, I have to try to do something to offset this mm. and try to keep it from disrupting the progress that the team is making. That's why it tickles me when oh, I want to get in the UX. Do you know what you're really getting into? <laughs> yeah. We are the baby, this. but we are the baby in the room and our diaper still needs to be changed. If you're coming in the UX, be ready to change some diapers. All of this is kind of rolled up into a couple of things. You know, you're saying the reason for that is because we're misunderstood. I agree with that, but I don't think it's only that. And you kind of touched on it's not. part of what I would add to that already, mm -hmm. which is where I was starting to go in terms of the approachability to the work. I mean, so you mentioned MS Paint because, right, there's people drawing parallels between creating something in MS Paint and doing UX design. Mm-hmm. It's not, I'm not here to say somebody's right, wrong, or indifferent to to combine to, to, to draw a parallel between those two and say I'm doing the same thing, because of course that's not the case. But that's not even what's relevant. Is it feels more approachable, right? Yeah. And I and that's what makes me wonder whether or not that's what's causing this so much. Some of them, some of the instances where I've talked to people and observed, people are intrigued by UX work. Some people think that what we're doing, they see what we produce mm. and they think that's all we do. Sure. So we're simple. They don't realize all the work that goes into the interface that they see. Right. People realize all the psychological components. They don't realize the understanding of the mental models. They don't, they don't realize the examining and measuring the cognitive load. They don't understand the risk and the error mitigation. That, that that by the time somebody like me shows you something, I've done, I've gone through no fewer than 50 to 100 scenarios to optimize what I have presented to you. And not even to mention the hordes and hordes of heuristics that I was trying to make sure I was in alignment with. They just sat down and threw something together in five minutes 
and thought that they had done something that was the equivalent. And I encourage that person. Hey, if you have some ideas, come talk to me. Let, let's collaborate. But he was willing to, and, and a lot of times they just want to like knock you out of the way as if you weren't even there. They, they are willing to displace. And I've literally heard people, not in those terms, but say and do the same exact things. Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of people have oversimplified UX. And a lot of the oversimplification of UX is really our fault because we don't educate people. And that ties back to UX maturity. Another another caveat with UX maturity that I didn't mention, I was, I saw you inhaled. I know you got something. I want to throw this uh, this other thing in here for people to understand the, uh, the understanding of the reach of UX maturity. UX hiring is no mystery. UX hiring is an absolute joke. It, it is a mega dysfunctional arena. A lot of times because of, of some a few key contributing factors, the hiring managers don't understand UX. A lot of companies hire people who don't know or value or understand UX to run their UX teams. So that's going to hurt hiring. Mm. The HR people, the recruiters don't understand. And a lot of times, and a lot of us have experienced it, you talk to somebody about a UX job and you start asking certain questions and they can't answer any of them because they don't no, these are things. If UX maturity is where it needs to be, the hiring, all those potholes yeah. in the hiring process get smoothed out. I, I I really appreciate the fact that you've given such thorough thought to what UX maturity means. <clears throat> when I asked you that question, I, I thought you were just going to give a definition. You know what I mean? And then we were and then we were going to have further discussion on that. No, I really do appreciate the fact that you've thought a lot about all these facets because that's one of those things. That's definitely going to have a trickle down effect if the person responsible Bingo. for hiring the UX talent in that organization yep. has a low maturity understanding of that by whatever definition mm-hmm. that will permeate the remainder of the organization without question. Yep. It it is going to hurt it's going to impact the way that UX is represented to the decision makers in the organization is going to represent a lot of us have worked at companies that why do we always only get in on the projects at the last minute, a reflection of UX maturity. And, and again, it might happen on three projects, but not all. But the question is, what have we communicated to the organization so that everybody has the proper expectations of how to engage with and benefit from the UX operation? And a lot of companies that discussion never takes place. So when you have some art director or creative director or somebody else who was chasing a check get thrown into this this high-level UX position that they knew that they didn't, they weren't qualified for, but they weren't going to turn it down because they got this huge pay increase. They're not going to turn it down. Nobody turns those types of things down. But I talk to people, they're getting them everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then, ironically, just to throw this one in there, when those people come across somebody like me, not just me, I know a lot of people in the same same boat. When they try to get a job at that company, they get blocked. People talk about the new UXers getting blocked. Seniors are being blocked. Real seniors are being blocked across the discipline. And a lot of them end up consulting because they can't get, they reach a point that they can't get hired. Because the, I've had people, oh, they just make excuses. Oh, you don't know anything about e-commerce, you know, but they didn't even ask. Uh, oh, we, we, and, and what's the, the famous one? We decided to go with other people whose qualifications are more closely aligned 
you know that that's the one. I don't know who came up with that, but but they need to be flogged. <laughs> that's like ridiculous. You no, no, you didn't. You didn't come up with anybody more aligned. But a lot of these these unqualified UX leaders, quote unquote, they don't want real UXers because they're offended. They're threatened. Oh, that person can do my job. I'm not hiring them. It's amazing. And, but what happens is, okay, so that happens in these little buckets, but we're all connected. That's the other thing. There is, that's the fifth one that I didn't mention that I was leaving out, but I'll bring it in here. There is a discipline-wide UX maturity too. Sure. How, how are we doing? That's the fifth one. That's when I said 20% and when I decided to leave out there. How are we doing as a discipline? Well, we're struggling because, and, and even though some people say, hey, things are getting better, but this thing, this war against seniors has not dissipated. We're not going to get better until that gets resolved. When I came on board, when I came into the discipline and I got a Jesse James Garrett book and I got a Nathan Shetroff book and I got a Susan Weinshank book, I wasn't sitting there gatekeeping. I'm not listening to them. Rah, 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 rah. I wasn't doing that. I was trying to learn as much as I could. I kept my mouth shut. I was quiet for 17 years before anybody knew I existed in social media. I mean, social media came across, came around later, but I wasn't, I didn't say anything until I saw what I saw starting to form in the discipline. That's when I started trying to defend the discipline because, hey, we're going to, I saw the same thing happen when I was an instructional designer. I don't want to say see the same thing happen over here. So I got loud and I've been loud ever since. Hmm. And, and, but until we can, can not be offended by people who know more than us until we can, can embrace and see that, that extra skilled person, I would love to work with that person. They'll help me grow. And still people see us as an asset instead of a threat or, 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 or um, somebody to compete with. We're not going to, we're not going to get there. We didn't fight against. Alan Cooper wanted to read his books. I hope he comes out with another book. I want to hear him talk. We didn't fight against him. But today, oh, they I saw a person on Medium just yesterday who wrote an article saying that we've got some issues we need to be concerned about in UX. I've been in UX 10 years, so I've been here since the beginning. And I went, what? You've been here since when? The age of misinformation in UX started in 2011. You've been here since the since the age of misinformation began. This <laughs> you, but they're telling people that they they've been in this thing since the beginning. How many people? And a lot of us, there's something I call baby bird syndrome, where people just they just close their eyes and open up their mouth and trust whatever whatever anybody's going to drop in there, and that's what they do. You you haven't been in there since the beginning. You barely you barely got your feet wet. Mm -hmm. So here's the thing: I got to be respectful of your time, and I'm going to ask you this huge question. <laughs> Before we start wrapping up, okay. how do we how do we fix UX maturity? <laughs> I'm going to ask you that with a few minutes left. We fix it. I got a simple answer for it. We fix it. I don't know if you've ever seen this thing that I, I created. It's called the UX cycle of excellence. It starts out by seven steps of which once you get the first two down pat, you repeat the last five for the rest of your career. There are people who have skipped over the first two steps and I'm going to I'm going to uh, bring this up to make sure that I don't miss anything. You start out by doing, the, ironically, the thing that people don't do. Properly define the discipline. That's step one. You properly define the discipline. How many times a day do we hear people saying, well, there's no definition. We can't even agree. 
We don't agree because there's a bunch of people who refuse to accept the things that our forefathers in the discipline taught us. If we embrace what Jacob Nielsen was talking about back in the day, go and read his usability engineering book. The things that Alan Cooper talked about when Nathan Shetroff wrote his book on experience design, it's still out there. Go get it. And, and great UX content has a very long shelf life. This stuff is still solid. Mm-hmm. Go and read mm-hmm. Jesse James Garrett's book. I believe it was updated once, but go read it. Information architecture, which was all but abandoned between 2012 and 2023. And it, it sparked a bunch of goofy things, which I won't get into, and a bunch of fake positions that don't even exist. But, you know, as long as people get paid, they don't care. We, If we go back and properly define the discipline, that's step one. So anybody who's been doing, I don't care if you've been doing UX 5, 10, 15 years, and there are people who meet those descriptions. If you properly define the discipline, that's a start. Step two, embrace UX's foundational tenets. I personally call them the four pillars, usability and heuristics, information architecture, UX research, of which there are, according to the folks who created the Universal Design Book, there's 125 methods, methodologies, techniques, and deliverables. It's not just go and create a survey and you're on your way. It's, it's not, let me just go and do usability testing. Some people, they, they think that's all UX research is, is usability testing. They don't know that there's a whole slew of techniques that we can use, and we need to identify the technique to use based on what our goals are. So broaden your perspective, understand what UX research really is. And then the last one, which is the funny one, it is user interface design and slash interaction design. Mm -hmm. Because you can't create an interface without interaction design principles of which Tognazzini and, 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 and and some others created some wonderful tenets to help us to, to, to design Schneiderman is the one that comes to mind first and foremost they came up with a with tons of guidelines to help us optimize those things. These are the foundational tenets of the discipline. And a lot of people getting in UX, they're not learning them. The educational venues that they are learning about UX are not teaching them. I've talked to people who've gone to boot camps that say that they barely talked about information architecture at mm-hmm. all. They got on it, they got off of it. But every, every experience is about findability. And that's what IA produces, findability based on the nomenclatures and the taxonomies and the information sense and cues that they produce. How, how are you going to do UX work and you don't know how to do information architecture? But folks don't. So if we do those two things and then come back, constantly evaluate your current state, identify knowledge and skill gaps that you have, always build toward excellence, commit to personal maintenance of your status within the discipline, that 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 commitment to lifelong learning and then step seven which i think is funny be patient yeah oh man itself which talk about talk about a punchline be patient i mean for everything that's yep i'm guilty of it i'm guilty of it want it to change today want you to understand right now want to have the impact yesterday totally that's a that is an awesome punchline to that in every part of those each by the way right not just in in whole or in some yeah, but for each one of those, um, yeah, that's 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 really good. I really, really appreciate that. I gotta say, everything we've talked about just doesn't sound like you have a very strong perspective on this stuff. <laughs> so, 
I think what we'll do, Darren, is probably be respectful of your time and wrap it up. Of course, I'm joking. Um, really appreciate you. <laughs> really appreciate you jumping on and taking the time Thank to you. share this stuff. I mean, I'm very, very sure we could spend half a day easy into all this easily. <laughs> easily. So here's the thing I like to do at the end of every show, right? Is uh is I ask the guests, I say, if I got temporary amnesia, somebody comes up and says, Hey. <laughs> you were on that podcast what was that all about how would you summarize what we discussed today let's see this is a call to what i what i like to call pure ux that's what we talked about today we talked about some of the challenges facing ux today and what we can do to overcome them to vault this discipline forward it's a fantastic discipline but if we don't treat it right if we let it have a life of its own we're in trouble so pure you this is about pure ux Right. Succinctly said. Mm -hmm. So because there's so much more to discuss here, and I know that you're always happy to do it and you share a lot of your thoughts and stuff already. Somebody wants to continue the conversation with you. Maybe they want to yell at you. Maybe they want to disagree with you, whatever the case may be. Where can they find you more of your work? Get in touch, ask questions, continue the conversation. Most people engage with me on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, asterisk, uh, any trolls? I, I dismiss trolls immediately. Uh, because that's just a waste of everybody's time. It's a waste of the troll's time. Uh, it's a waste of my time. It's a waste of other people's time. So if somebody comes after me to argue, I don't argue. There's nothing to argue. The sky is blue. We need to breathe. Your car needs gas, unless it's a hybrid. There, there's a lot of things that are absolutes. So I don't argue. So uh, so if anybody comes to me from that perspective, know that I'm I'm going to dismiss you about as fast as you showed up. Uh, but you can. But most people connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, I engage. I, I have what's called. I, I host. The UX Chit Chat Hour, which is a monthly meetup for people all over the world to come together, coffee house style conversation. We just talk about UX like this. We just talk for a couple of hours about any and everything. And sometimes, especially when we get around holidays, it's extended. So we'll talk for like three and four hours and people stay at these things. It is free of charge and people can come anytime. You got the podcast, The World of UX with Darren Hood, which you can find anywhere. Uh, and, uh, wow, the UX Uncensored channel on YouTube and the UX Uncensored blog at uxuncensored.medium.com. So I'm sort of any and everyone. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I've, I just invaded Blue Sky and Pebble and, <laughs> and Mastodon and Instagram. I'm I'm everywhere. Facebook. Yeah, I'm everywhere. Well, I'll tell you what we're going to do is we're going to put links to all of those things. <laughs> in the blog post of the show notes for this where you'll find the transcript and all that stuff as well yep. darren hood really appreciate you taking the time sharing your perspective and years of experience in this appreciate absolutely. you chatting with me today absolutely thanks thanks for having me i always appreciate the opportunity to share absolutely we'll see you uh next time all right man thank you this podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the platform designed to help you gather research data, make sense of it fast, and turn it into insights and action. It's a central place to search and share all of your research data and insights. You can try Aurelius for free with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a review on iTunes and let others know. You'll find all the links and resources to each episode on the show notes at blog.aureliuslab.com. Catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast almost anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for our email updates on our website.